I'm Ted Seides, and this is Private Equity Deals. Middle market businesses are where the real action takes place. Around 200,000 businesses in the United States fall into the middle market size range, generally defined as generating revenue between $25 million and a billion dollars. These businesses collectively employ 50 million people, or almost a third of the U.S. workforce, and represent two-thirds of total U.S. private equity deal value. Big deals may grab the big headlines, but a lot of action in the economy and private equity industry takes place in the universe of middle market businesses. Season one of Private Equity Deals shared deals from eight well-known GPs. In season two, we discussed eight well-known companies bought by private equity firms. We can't begin to cover the massive middle market in just eight deals, but in season three, you'll get a tiny sliver of what the middle market is all about. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinions of capital allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Clients of capital allocators or guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On episode two of season three of Private Equity Deals, Greg Fleming discusses Rockefeller Capital Management. Greg is the CEO of Rockefeller Capital Management, a business he created alongside the Rockefeller family and Viking Global Investors with the purchase of Rockefeller & Co. in 2018. Greg was a guest describing his background and the early years of RCM on Capital Allocators, and that conversation is replayed in the feed. Rockefeller Capital Management is a platform that encompasses private wealth management, strategic advisory, and asset management formed out of the former family office of the Rockefeller family that today advises on over $100 billion in assets. Our conversation covers Greg's vision for Rockefeller Capital, the deal to purchase Rock & Co., tuck-in acquisitions of private wealth managers, development of strategic advisory, and refining of the asset management business. We discussed the tuck-in acquisition process, including sourcing, diligence, deal structure, and integration, and the technology and operations required to make it work. We closed discussing the recent recapitalization of RCM by the Demeray family and Greg's aspirations for the next five years. Please enjoy my conversation with Greg Flem. Greg, great to see you. Good to see you again, Ted. Why don't we just touch a little bit on your background with an eye towards how it led to your being in the seat of running Rockefeller Capital? I graduated from law school in 1988, and I spent four and a half years as a management consultant at Booz Allen and Hamilton, and then I went to Merrill Lynch. And that really was the start of the part of my career that really led to what Rockefeller Capital Management is today. So I spent 17 years at Merrill. I started on the investment banking side, and I ended up in leadership positions first running the Financial Institutions Group, and ultimately I was the president during the credit crisis and sold it to Bank of America and left right after we closed the sale in early 09. In the time at Merrill, I obviously spent a lot of time in investment banking and the institutional business, but in the last few years, I spent more and more time with the wealth management business, and it reported to me for the last couple of years of my time at Merrill Lynch. When I left Merrill, I took some time off. I taught at my alma mater, Yale Law School, And then I went to Morgan Stanley to work for my former colleague at Merrill, James Gorman, when he took over as CEO running wealth and asset management. And I spent six years there. We spent a lot of time reconfiguring those businesses, the wealth management business there when I left. And to this day is a huge and important part of Morgan Stanley's success under James. I left Morgan Stanley in 2016. And when I was looking at what I was going to do at that point in time, the confluence of wealth management investment banking, and even asset management were the pieces that I wanted to try to pull together. How did the vision for Rockefeller Capital come together? My view when I left Morgan Stanley was that there was a window in the marketplace for wealth management advice to high net worth and ultra high net worth clients being done differently, where if you pull together comprehensive advice, not just on the investment side, but generational planning, tax planning, and investment banking capability. And that's the Rockefeller strategic advisory piece that we've built. Because in the United States, so many people make wealth through building a business. 
And I thought that would be another competitive advantage to be able to provide them advice on those businesses. Maybe sell the business if they're ready to sell. Maybe just give them advice on should they sell or not. And then we have Rockefeller Asset Management, which was part of the original company that we bought, Rock & Co., focusing on areas where we can create differentiated investment performance in specialized categories. So the pieces all work together. It's not three different businesses. They're integrated and they're all really focused. And that was the vision up front. So with that vision of integration across these different disciplines to serve these families, how did the deal come together? The deal came together around the name. When I heard that we could buy Rock & Co and build this business around this name, I really pushed hard on that. And I had been talking to multiple private equity players who wanted to provide the capital for me to build this vision that I talked about in terms of the pieces. I was approached by Viking right after I left Morgan Stanley, Brian Kaufman, who runs the private fund, about doing something with them. They were quite interested in the space. They wanted me to lead it, and they wanted to be our major capital partner. And as I started working with them, I liked their vision and the way they thought about it a lot. There was a lot of alignment between them and me around how we would approach it. I liked the way they manage portfolio companies. They have something they call GBGM, Great Business, Great Management. They find a business they like the characteristics of. They put a great management team in place. And then they leave the day-to-day to you. They're there on all the big, important topics. They've been great partners. And they're smart and real value added. I was quite impressed with their vision, the way they wanted to operate. And I can say in year six, that's been a home run relationship across the board. So the pieces came together, Viking, Rockefeller, and the vision. And we went after Rock & Co. hard to buy it, and we bought it. In that process, you mentioned some of the attractive features of Viking. I can imagine with all the relationships you have, there are probably others that you could have done it with and would have let you run with it. What was it on the margin that led you to want to partner with Viking? They were quite clear and consistent on the vision that I had for what Rockefeller Capital Management could become. They really believed in a comprehensive set of advisory services to high net worth and ultra high net worth families. They thought there was a niche in the marketplace for that. They agreed that the best way to build that was to have that advice go through world-class private advisors that we'd recruit. And then they were quite clear on the operating model. They really were consistent in saying, we know who you're going to recruit and you're going to go do it and we're going to be right there alongside you. I just thought these guys are thoughtful. We're aligned. They're consistent in the way they approach it. They're straight shooters. So they believed in excellence. Now, the bar was going to be set high, but I've always been happy to cut that deal with everybody. They believe in excellence, so they need to hold me to that bar, hold my team to that bar. So I thought the alignment was really across everything. And it doesn't always turn out in life that you think the alignment is consistent across everything and it works out, but it has here. So once you decided to partner with them, you knew that there was this opportunity to buy Rock & Co., How did that deal process come together? This was originally the family office of the guy, John Rockefeller Sr., back in 1882, became a multifamily office in the 1970s. At the time we bought it, the primary owners were the Rockefeller family and Jacob Rothschild, who had stepped in to buy Sockgen's piece in 2008. So they had an investment banker. They had mostly crossed the line and were ready to sell it. The Rockefeller family was very focused on who would buy this because they care so much about their name. So we started to get to know the family and we offered a competitive price, but there was a get to know you with the family and, okay, what are you thinking of doing with the name and with the new company and where is this going and how will it work long-term? So we had a lot of that conversation with some of the leadership of the family. We have two of the family members on our board from the beginning through this day, David Rockefeller Jr. and Peter O'Neill. The family rolled some of their ownership in Rock & Co. into Rockefeller Capital Management. So they own a piece of the company alongside Viking and me and now the Demeray family. Many of the Rockefellers were clients of Rock & Co. and are clients of Rockefeller Capital Management. So we are intertwined with the family. Another positive, Ted, was the values of the family and the way they approach the world and the way people view the name. The second generation, John Rockefeller Jr., was really the world's first great philanthropist. They started the University of Chicago, Spelman College, named after Laura Spelman Rockefeller, the Lincoln Center, Museum of Modern Art, Asia Society, Land for the United Nations, Grand Teton National Park, Acadian National Park, a hospital in China, in Beijing that's still there today. It's everywhere. They were incredible 
in giving back to the United States and around the world right from generation two, and they're now in generation seven. They've kept it up. So the values of the family, the way they view the world, the fact that they cared who was buying Rock and Co. It wasn't just about money. They wanted to know, well, who are we partnering with? We have this Rockefeller name. We want to make sure that there's an alignment of interest and values between not just Greg Fleming, but also Viking. So Viking and I and the Rockefeller spent time together as well so that we could all make sure that we had the same vision for what we were going to do with this incredible name. So then there was the usual deal process and negotiation, and we got it. And we closed on March 1st, 2018, and then we were off to the races. What was it that you bought at the time? It was really mostly a smaller family office focused on both the Rockefeller family and other families. A lot of the investment advice was around what was happening in Rockefeller Asset Management. So a lot of the family office clients were invested in the strategies in Rockefeller Asset Management. So what we wanted to do right out of the gate as we started to build Rockefeller Capital Management was create an open architecture and start working with clients on a broader basis and bring in other managers and bring that model to the fore. So we bought a great name, a lot of good talented people at the original Rock & Co., some long-term strategies in Rockefeller asset management, including with an ESG overlay, which was quite helpful, and a set of clients within the family office. That's what we bought. What were the total assets under management at the time of the acquisition? They were about $18 billion. With this vision you have to integrate it, there's a lot of pieces in place. How did you start to build from what you first purchased back in 2018? Two of the businesses were really from scratch. The business of bringing in private advisors who would work in a broker-dealer format, we needed to build the broker-dealer and all the licenses and everything that went with that. There was no strategic advisory, so we needed to start to build a boutique investment bank. The biggest part of our focus in those first few years was the operating platform, the technology platform that would allow us to hire these private advisors and bring on these clients. Because if you're Rockefeller Capital Management, and you bring in a world-class private advisor who's going to bring their clients with them and then add new clients and add assets to those clients, you've got to be able to deliver some of the things that you're talking about. So for five and a half years, we've been building out, and Ted, this is on the back of a really, really good leadership team. One of the great things about a long career is that you know great people from so many different parts of your life. And we have people running different functions that really are as good as you can find anywhere. And because of that, we've been able to put in place an operating platform that's appropriate to support the business of these private advisors and these high net worth and ultra high net worth clients that have come to Rockefeller Capital Management. So we have world-class technology. It helps that it's 2023 and you can partner with different entities. And we build a lot of it. It's all cloud-based, which makes it quite competitive. And the guy who runs our technology and operations, Mark Alexander, was 24 years at Merrill, worked for me there when I was president, running technology for wealth management at Merrill, pre the sale to Bank America. So we've got technology that's as good as you can find anywhere. Mark is in the process of rolling out new advisor workstation, new mobile apps, and things like that. So that even though Rockefeller Capital Management is a smaller firm relative to a lot of the major competitors we have, we're quite confident that our technology is as good as or better than anybody else's. So those things were key, though. You can't just go hire private advisors, say you're Rockefeller, and you're in business. Because you've got to have great technology, a really good operating platform, great legal and compliance, bill pay, taxes, the boutique investment bank. So all of that has to be built so that you can hire world-class private advisors, which is our model, and bring those clients in. And then most unique part of Rockefeller Capital Management today is that we are growing and think we can continue to grow on an organic basis. New assets from existing clients or new clients in a fashion that the industry really hasn't seen before because we're very tightly focused through these private advisors on high net worth and ultra high net worth. So we have thousands of clients, not millions, and we've built such a great set of products and services and platforms supporting those advisors that it's differentiated in the marketplace. I'd love to dive into the business of growing the assets through financial advisors once you have that infrastructure built. And maybe go back to some of those early acquisitions of teams. What does that general business look like in terms of 
going and finding a team, deciding it's world-class, and then getting them to come onto the platform? Great question. And the heart of what we've built. Because if you don't do that the way we do it, you can't get to the end of the rainbow here. It really is the essence of it. It's trended over time somewhat differently, Ted, because now we're six years in, we're over 100 teams, and the phone rings all over the place. Because it's Rockefeller Capital Management, we have terrific momentum. People see the evidence of the things I said we were building. They can come and they can see the technology. They can talk to advisors that are already here. So a lot of it is you're out there in the field and you're in the playoffs now. Early on, we were building those things. Some of the early teams came to a more rudimentary structure, but our approach to teams from the start has been the same. They have to have a great book of business focused on high net worth and ultra high net worth clients, but we wanted teams that had worked with those clients for a long time, that had loyal clients, that we wanted them used to working with clients that were high net worth and ultra high net worth. We also wanted teams that had really clean compliance records and wanted to be part of Rockefeller. So this isn't, we're rolling up a bunch of teams across the country. They all work for Rockefeller Capital Management. They all believe in our culture. And we talk all the time about excellence on one hand and a collaborative, collegial, positive culture on the other. So if you're painful, even if you're really good, whatever part of the firm you'd be part of, we don't want you here. We have a very positive reinforcing culture and people like getting off the elevator and they like coming to work here. There's a high bar. It's not for everybody because if somebody's not performing at that bar of excellence, then it's not fair to all the other people that are always working hard to move the place forward. And when you're building a company, it is much more 24-7 for everybody. So people pay that price. So one of the things we give back to our team is to say, well, everybody's going to function that way starting at the top and through all parts of the firm. But the advisors in these teams, they need to sign on to that too. They're part of this firm. They're part of that culture. The business card says Rockefeller Capital Management. And we want them to say that they're proud to carry the business card that has this incredible family name. We want them to know this is the Rockefellers. And look at what they've done over seven generations in this country and around the world. You've got that business card. Now we all have to live up to that. So we're looking for all of that, not just a book of business, not just revenues. And we spend a lot of time on that. And we talk to a lot of teams that we say, we don't want to proceed or this isn't for you. And I'm sure there are teams that we talk to who say, well, they're going to go somewhere else, particularly if they're looking for the highest bid in the market. That's never us. And we don't want somebody who's thinking that way. If somebody wants to monetize their business at the highest possible price, we'd rather they went somewhere else. That's not what we're looking for. So we spend a lot of time on this process of the right teams in the right cities across the country. The last piece, Ted, is we want teams that have a burning desire to grow, to continue to build their practice, to plug into all that Rockefeller can bring, all the things I talked about, best-in-class technology. We have this great investment platform. We bring the best alternative managers through to our clients. We've got the boutique investment bank. We've got all of those things supporting these advisors so they come here and they grow. And we've had teams, Ted, that have now been here for three or four years that have doubled their book in that time, and we'll probably double it again. The management structure is also flat. I've talked to hundreds of clients here, hundreds. When they come over in the beginning, over time, when I was running wealth management at Morgan Stanley, we had 4 million clients. It's impossible to talk to a lot of clients. Here, I can also follow up. I get to know them. They can come here and be in this room and have lunch. If they have a technology question, sometimes Mark Alexander will talk to the client directly or one of his senior technologists on, okay, tell us what's bothering you about the app. And we have that at all levels of the firm. So it's a very flat structure too. So if you're the advisor, you can call on senior management to help you with your client. And that's in the drinking water here now. Everybody's focused on the client. Once you've engaged with a team that you're interested in, curious about the diligence process, how do you get to know them to know that their values are aligned with what you're espousing for Rockefeller? We really dig in. They do too. In fairness, this is a big decision most of the teams that we're hiring are moving for the first time, or maybe a second time they moved early in their career. So it's a big event for them too. It's a huge event for their clients. They're going to call the client up and say, I know I've been at X firm for all these years. We're going to join Rockefeller Capital Management. So they dig in and we dig in, and it's typically a long courting process. Months can be years. You can be talking to a team and there seems to be an alignment, but they've got something going on either in their personal lives or in their business, and they decide to stay for a while. So it takes a long time. 
So they meet a lot of people here, literally dozens as they come to know it. We want them to come to 45 Rock and see home office and walk around and feel the vibe. And is this a place that they would be comfortable working in? I meet a lot of the teams. The senior leadership team talks about the teams after we've met them, what they're like personally, what they're interested in. Are their values aligned? Do they seem like the type of people that are going to walk down the hallway here and say hello to everybody, which is part of the culture? Do they want to win? I always use him as an example. Derek Cheater's on our board. And one of the things he pushes all the time within the board framework is Derek wants to win in everything that he does, and he's incredibly competitive. But he's a really good person and a really good guy with the right values. So I say to people, that's what we're doing here. So we want to get a sense of, does the team and do these individuals fit into that here? There are times when it's like, you know, I don't think this is going to work. Or this team is terrific, and can we get them in here? And that'll feed back to the negotiation process where if it's a great team and we think it's a real alignment, where we differentiate ourselves in terms of the transition awards, how to get them over, is around growth hurdles. And we'll put in additional growth hurdles for a great team to try to get them on board with us. So that's part of the iterative process as well. What do the structure of these deals look like? We want teams that want to come and basically join Rockefeller forever. So when I was at Merrill 15 years ago, the deals in the industry might have been six, seven, eight years. Ours are double that because we want it to be a really long-term partnership with the teams. And we want teams that want to sign on to that. If somebody's looking for something shorter term again, that's not us. Just like if somebody wants to maximize current dollars, that's not us either. So you have a payment for the business up front, and then that payment is amortized over the length of the deal, which, as I said, goes into the mid-teens here and beyond sometimes. That payment is in and around two times revenues for us as a benchmark. And then what we put on top of that, and this is where we differentiate ourselves. So the two times, I think, is market competitive, but certainly not on the high end. But these are great teams, and we want to be competitive and negotiate a fair deal. But then we put the growth hurdles in for payments that can be made in years three, four, five, seven, ten, And that's where we differentiate ourselves. We want advisors looking to grow their practice. We don't want advisors that are simply looking for the next big check. Our experience over time is that those who grow their practice are relentlessly focused on doing a great job for their clients, which is ultimately the most important variable in the mix. How do you think about the return on investment on any one team as it relates to the bottom line of Rockefeller Capital? The way to back into the math, Ted, if we bring somebody on for about that price up front, two times revenues, and they deliver their business and they grow okay, then it's a good return for us and it's a fair deal for them. If they doubled their business, even if we're paying a growth hurdle, the return to Rockefeller is really strong return. The blend, if you pick the right teams, is a very attractive business model. So once you've completed an acquisition, the first step in that integration is to make sure that that team is able to bring their clients over. How do you try to increase or maximize the probability that that happens? Another great question. We spent a lot of time on this. And again, we think we do this particularly well. We have an integration and execution group that helps open accounts. They do a lot of the operating and administrative work to bring the clients over. We want the team, when they join us, to spend all of their time talking to the clients and getting Greg Fleming to talk or Mark Alexander or any of the other leadership team here to talk to the clients and say, this is Rockefeller. This is why we think you'll be in a really good position here with this team. So that's where we want the team focus. The technology and the fluidity of the technology helps a lot to make it easy for the client and for the team to move the client over and become a client of Rockefeller Capital Management. The flatness of the management team and the organizational structure again. I do lots of calls, but my colleagues do as well. The leadership team here does. So it's basically a full core press from day one through bringing all the clients over that the team wants to bring over. And our success rates on this, we don't publicize these, but we have the team ready to focus on new assets for the clients they brought over or new clients in months, not years. And that's another key part of the model. And it's a key part of the economic returns too, Ted, because you're making the investment in the team up front, the transitional payments. If you wait several years for the clients to onboard, it's like any DCF analysis. You're discounting it back. And if the earnings are there later, the payment goes out up front, the IRR looks less 
For us, the IRR looks better because the business comes sooner. So we're discounting back a bigger number right away. So it's a virtuous cycle all the way around. And it takes the stress off of the team. They want their clients to come. They want to get embedded here at Rockefeller Capital Management. And again, we're hiring the right teams in our lexicon. They have this burning desire to grow. So they want to get here, get the business over, and then start moving. When you've acquired 100 different teams, they bring over 100 different books of investments. And I'm curious on your side, what does that look like from the delivery of the private wealth investment strategy for Rockefeller Capital when it starts with probably 100 different types of investment strategies and underlying investments to integrate it into something that might look a little more consistent? We do spend a lot of time on that as well. So the team has the clients in a set of investments and they've been working with the clients for a long time. But we don't want 20,000 options. We want fewer number of options. So there's a transitional time where the clients can come over with the existing set of investment options. But over time, if it's a couple of clients in one option, we might say, okay, well, that one's going to go in this category and be closed off. We have an office of the CIO within Rockefeller Global Family Office. Jimmy Chang is the CIO there. Terrific guy. You'll see him out all the time on the different networks. All of that shapes what the advisors are working with their clients on. So it's open architecture. There's a decentralized approach in the sense that we're hiring great teams that have worked with clients for a long time. So there's no top-down, this is what you should do. But there's also a framework that they can operate within with a lot of expertise, including what the Investment Solutions Group does, what Jimmy Chang and team recommend, that they can draw on and do. So it's not all over the map. There's a consistency across what we do. I'd love to turn to the strategic advisory component of the business. So from scratch, how did you go about building that so it could serve your clients? And I sometimes smile when I say this because it really was part of the original vision. It was something that I believed in from having watched Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, the industry. There's a real synergy for the client if you can make it connected. It's harder in the big firms because they're scaled. The investment bankers at the big firms are going after very big deals. Whereas we might have a client here that wants to sell a business that they've been building for three generations for two or $300 million, a lot of money to them and obviously a lot of money on an absolute basis, but not a big deal in big investment banking context. So I really thought there was an opportunity for us to help serve that client base. So I brought a few people in from my past early on. One of the things that we've gotten better at over time that we didn't do particularly well up front is the connectivity there. Early on, you had the bankers, We're building the Rockefeller Global Family Office. You have some teams, but not that many. The teams are getting up to speed on everything around their core business. So there wasn't as much connectivity between Rockefeller Strategic Advisory and Rockefeller Global Family Office. Now we have a fluid, literally daily connection with concepts or ideas that come from Rockefeller Global Family Office that Rockefeller Strategic Advisory screens. Sometimes the introduction occurs. We get hired to sell the business. We sell the business. The proceeds go back into the client's accounts at Rockefeller Capital Management, and it's that virtuous cycle. And the most important part of that virtuous cycle is the client benefited everywhere. We went out and we got a great price, and then the money's back and we're helping them manage it. But it started slowly, Ted, both in terms of the people we had in the strategic advisory business and the connectivity with Rockefeller Global Family Office. We have tremendous momentum relative to where we were two or three years ago today. We have co-heads of Rockefeller Strategic Advisory, Steve Valentino and Jim Radigan, both veteran bankers. Jim was with me at Merrill. Uh, Steve ran financial institutions at Deutsche. They work really well together. Their team working really well with the Rockefeller Global Family Office with Chris Dupuy and Michael Outlaw on the leadership team there. So it's really working well now. But if you asked me 18 months ago, where are we on that? We had a long ways to go. It's been the last year or two where we've really picked up momentum. What was the inflection that created that momentum? I think it's, as always, it's both leadership, so the people, getting the right people in the leadership role. Jim, to his credit, hired Steve and made him co-head. And Steve had a set of skills that were complementary to Jim's. Same thing, Chris promoted Michael Outlaw. So the connectivity on the leadership side became much tighter. And then the expertise became better. We have just a better investment banking team now than we did three or four years ago with some really high quality people there. We also have a broader and deeper set of private advisor teams across the country who have more clients that are running businesses that need advice. 
so that there's a scaling of that as well. So it's both leadership, expertise, and then the inevitable benefit of the scaling that we're doing. So I want to turn over to the Rockefeller asset management side. The strategic advisory family office business are clearly serving clients, serving these families. Asset management is a super competitive world that is just driven by returns. How have you thought about that business line as it integrates into the whole? Casey Clark is running that. He's been running, I think, for the last year and a half, a great young leader who really understands asset management, understands the sustainable investing landscape, how it's all coming together, where we can carve out a differentiated role in, as you said, a very competitive business, very mature business. And things that you and I have seen for a long time, the mutual fund business is clearly on the other side of any growth curve. That's not changing going forward. So we need to pick our spots. First of all, and this is part of Casey's vision, you have to perform. It's asset management, whatever piece you're looking to be part of. So investment performance is really important. So we do a lot of work in ESG, but we're quite clear to clients and the outside world that we have ESG portfolios. They're intended to deliver alpha, full stop. It's not nice to have. It's a key part of what we're doing. So performance is key. And then we're looking for areas that the advisors in particular might be able to tap into for their clients because they're areas that there's less direct expertise for them and maybe fewer options on the outside Rockefeller side. So we have small cap as an area for that. This long short strategy, we do a lot of work in fixed income with the fixed income team working with the private advisors and their clients. As rates have gone up, this has become one of the big areas of focus for clients. So the fixed income team is quite active on the RGFO side. When we hired uh, named Alex Patron, who's running that business, and that's been a real growth vehicle for us. So we're picking our spots. We recognize we need to perform. We want places that are high in intellectual capital, high in differentiated advice, and less on the commoditized, homogeneous side, where, as you said, the level of competition is just so high. As you've been building this out over the last couple of years, what's the relationship with Viking and the Rockefeller family been like along the way? The family's been just tremendous, and they've been drawn into it more and more over time. I think when we bought Rock & Co. and created Rockefeller Capital Management, for some in the family, it might have been, in their minds, the end of an era because Rock & Co. had been sold. For others, they were looking forward, like David Rockefeller Jr. and Peter O'Neill, who have been with us on this journey from day one. But I think over time, as we've scaled it and hopefully treated the brand, the name as it should be, and broadened its appeal even, I think we pulled in more of the Rockefeller family behind us and with us, which has been terrific. So they've been great. And it is a wonderful family. They have great values. They mean it. When you get to know the individuals, they're terrific human beings. The focus on philanthropy is real. It's everywhere. And they know they've got a family name that's highly regarded across society. I said this before we even closed. I did an interview with somebody. And I said, my father, who's now about to be 90, me, I'm now 60, and my kids who are in their 20s, they all have the same view of the name Rockefeller. It's one of the few names that's sustained through generations. Part of that, Ted, also is Rockefeller in popular culture. The Rockefeller name has been used in song by Frank Sinatra, Jay-Z, Billy Joel, Bruce Springsteen. It is a long list. It's like 15 or 20 of the greatest singers and entertainers over generations, though, have used the name Rockefeller in song. So it's in the fabric of our society. When you get to know the family, you can see why. It's a really nice group of people. There's over 300 of them in the world today. So we've had a great relationship with the Rockefellers, and it's going to endure. It's got a lot of momentum now, and it's going to endure. Viking we had the exploratory phase. We did the deal together. We had the alignment of everything I described earlier, the strategy for the firm, how we were going to go about it, capital investment, how we were going to run it day to day. It all was aligned from the gate. But then there was the practice, and it's actually operated that way for five and a half years. They're involved in everything that matters. On a day-to-day -day basis, they leave it to us. We've agreed on major financial and other objectives, and we've hit them, so they continue to be very supportive. They're very happy with the investment. It's been a great partnership. It was envisioned the right way up front. It was set up the right way up front, but it's actually performed that way over the almost six years now, five and a half years. What have been some of the biggest challenges along the way? You know, one of the big ones is 
we buy Rock & Co., we create Rockefeller Capital Management, and we say, this is what we're going to do internally. People pick it up externally. But then you have to go build it, and you have to make sure you can deliver. It's the Rockefeller name, very sophisticated clients, very sophisticated private advisors. Now, a private advisor that's managing hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of people's wealth and families that have created that wealth, maybe through building a business, these are all people of real stature. You got to deliver them. The technology and operating platform and all the services that we were going to need to bring to create this broad-based advice that advisors could do for their clients all had to be built. So that was a real pressure. And it's taken years. It's brick by brick. This gets built and then you move on to the next thing. We're in year six. We're still building. It'll be year 12 and we'll still be going. But we've made a tremendous amount of progress now. But that was definitely one thing that was a big focus up front. We had to get going on delivering on what we said we were going to do. Because otherwise, you hire the advisor, the client struggles, and the whole thing stops. And then there were some of the other things that fit into, we talk a lot about horizontal connectivity here. One of the lessons in my career is that bad things sometimes happen because of an absence of horizontal connectivity across a firm of whatever size. There were major challenges at Merrill from a risk standpoint because of a lack of horizontal connectivity as I look back. So we have a ton of it here and we talk about it constantly and I love to hear it. I'll be listening to a group of 10 people in a room and they'll talk about horizontal connectivity and I'll think, I'm getting it out there. It's working. The leadership team talks about it all the time. But that doesn't happen by magic either. We can talk about it. We can say, this is what we want to do and we want people to do, but you have to show them and you have to reinforce it and it has to start to really work day to day. So early on, strategic advisor in Rockefeller Global Family Office, the horizontal connectivity was just not great. The family office services and the private advisors, it just wasn't great. So those services were over here and the advisors are talking to their clients and we're not bringing it together well. So there were a whole series of those things that needed to be tied together more tightly. And again, we've done that. It's a lot better, but it's a journey. We still have more to do there. But at least among the 1,200 people at Rockefeller Capital Management, many, many of them walk around and use the phrase horizontal connectivity, and they're trying to make it happen. And if the phone rings anywhere in the firm and there's an issue for a client, that person knows they're supposed to try to help. It's not like, wait a minute, this doesn't fit into my department. How do you take that from not great to good to great? That part is leadership. It's leadership at my level, but it's the people, my team, the senior team, and it's the team working for them. And it's making it part of everybody's mindset here. Somebody once said this to me earlier in my career, if there's something you're really trying to push at whatever size organization, company, university, you're giving the speech, it's like pouring water on sand. You put a little water on the sand, it disappears. The sand's still there. You just keep pouring the water on the sand. And over time, it starts to take traction. And that's what we do here. So we're not trying to build 15 business lines. We're not trying to be something other than what I've described here from a strategic standpoint. We know what we are and where we're going. And we are constantly on the same themes that are critical success paths. Horizontal connectivity, excellence, collaboration and collegiality. All of these things are in the drinking water here all the time. We have an award called the Enterprise Connectivity Award that we created a couple of years ago. So we pick somewhere between seven or eight and up to 12 or 13 people a year. And the nominations come from the firm. We review them at a senior level, but they come through the firm. And those people get an extra bonus, but they get recognition. We have an event with them where we have a drink and the whole leadership team, we introduce them to our board. They get a plaque that goes on their desk. And we want that to be one of the greatest things that people want here. And you know what it is? It's enterprise connectivity. It's doing things across the firm that are not necessarily in your job or affect your day-to-day -day performance. It's rewarding the people who are out trying to make things happen. Malcolm Gladwell in one of his books calls them connectors, but we've now put them in the lights. And I do everything I can to make this the best possible award which is why I've even pulled the board and I want the board members to meet them. And David Rockefeller Jr. was at the cocktails we had a month or two ago on this, shaking every hand. So that's how you were saying, how do you get this horizontal connectivity? How do you get people acting this way? That's how you do it. And you say to them, take that plaque and put it on your desk. And when somebody comes up, say, this is the greatest award that exists at Rockefeller Capital Management. Me doing something to help somebody else in the firm or a client somewhere else that wasn't technically my day job. As you sit here today now, five, six years in, what does the business look like? 
We talked about 100 teams. Where are assets under management? How big is the scale of the organization? The assets under management are well north of $100 billion. So we've scaled. One of the benchmarks that I look at, Ted, is the footprint, I call it. So we wanted to take this magical name and put the footprint out across the US. So we're in 45 cities now, which probably was a little bit more than I had anticipated up front. But the reality is it's the magic of the United States. Wealth and success is in every pocket of the country, including in some of these new places that we both know of, Austin, Charlotte, Nashville. So we're in those cities. Getting in the right cities, and maybe it ends up being 50. And if you'd asked me five and a half years ago, I would have said 30 or 35, but maybe it's 50. Having scale in all of those places, which doesn't mean a huge number, could be five teams. So if you have five teams on average in 50 cities, we have 250 teams. We're about halfway to where we want to be. Because the inorganic side of our strategy is important, but at some point we'll have done most of what we want to do inorganically. And that magic organic growth that I talked about, that's the future of Rockefeller Capital Management. Viking, and we talked about that in 16 and 17, creating an entity that would have advisors that could year in and year out grow organically, which is the holy grail in the industry. People struggle to do that so much. Great firms. In my prior jobs, it was hard to do given the scale and everything else. We think we can do it on a differentiated basis as far as the eye can see. So the benchmark I look at the most is the footprint, getting it out there. And once that's in place, when we're in 50 cities with on average five teams, we'll be double the assets we are now. But more importantly, we'll be able to grow organically at double digit rates for the ensuing 10 years. And that'll put us in a very short list in financial intermediation. How do you go about catalyzing that organic growth when it's so hard for the industry as a whole? You've got to have it everywhere. It's back to your question. How do you get the horizontal connectivity everywhere in Rockefeller? Same thing. We talk about organic growth constantly. The second award we've created is an organic growth award, which we're about to roll out. And the organic growth award, again, we want to emphasize people who are particularly good at that, but not reducing the horizontal connectivity. We don't want people in their own silo just trying to grow. But organic growth, you want the whole firm. We have a great legal and compliance department, HR. We want them focused on organic growth too. That doesn't mean compliance can't say, sorry, we can't do that. They have to do that sometimes. But it does mean that they can try to do something that works for the client before they just say no. The whole firm can be focused on how do we do more for this client and how do we get more clients in? And it's everywhere now. You've recently recapitalized the business. I would love to hear how that came about and what that deal looked like. We had been approached by others, other families, institutional entities, and we were just focused on building the firm and growing. So there was a family that approached us fairly early on. I talked to Andreas, Brian, way too early. The phone had been ringing, including with strategic partners. We're trying to build something that will last for a long time. So we're very careful about this analysis. But when the Demarais put the concept out there, I was immediately interested because of the alignment of values and long-term orientation that I knew they would bring. So I know Paul Demarais Jr. Since my Merrill days, we had an international advisory board and he was on it. And I ran that board day to day. So he and I got to know each other really well. This is 20 years ago. Andre Demarais, they're the two co-chairmen. They're the second generation of Demarais. I've come to know in the last decade, but quite well as well. And they're terrific people, terrific values. There's a third generation, very successful already that's working. So when they put the concept out there, I went to Viking and I said, this could be an interesting partner. They hit all the right buttons, values, long-term orientation. They love our business model. They love the Rockefeller name. They love the growth model. On the Rockefeller name, Andre's mentor, literally one of his close mentors growing up, David Rockefeller Sr. And the connectivity there was real. They did a lot of things together. He has stories about when David was chairman of Chase, going to the Alfalfa Club dinner together, things like that. So there's a lot of history between the Demarais and the Rockefellers. So when they approached us, I went to Viking and I said, we should think this one through and look at it. And we started last fall. But it shows you these things always take time. So it was probably September when it's first out there, picks up momentum toward the end of the year. We ended up announcing it in early April. We wanted no more than a minority investment. Viking's quite happy with where we are and where we're going. So they weren't interested in more than a 20-ish percent. But all of the stars align on the things that matter. 
So the Demarese Investors Public, $622 million. Where did you come up with that number? Having negotiated, I don't know how many deals I've been involved in, but it's definitely north of 100 in my career. That's part of just the sausage making of back and forth on this point and that point. And then you end up with, instead of 19.9 or 20%, 20.5 at this price, that's all that is. No magic around that number versus a slightly different number. It was intended to be a minority stake in and around 20%. And then we just had a lot of back and forth. So there's primary capital going in the business, and then they're taking down the ownership of some of the people here. So it's a combination. They were very focused on the growth trajectory and where we're taking this over time. We have more connectivity than just a passive stake. So Andre Demaray and James O'Sullivan, who's the CEO of IGM, which is the entity in the power world that took the stake in Rockefeller Capital Management, they're on our board. And Jeff Orr is a special advisor to our board. I've worked closely with him and we wanted to make sure that we had Jeff in our boardroom. So there's two board seats plus Jeff as special advisor. We just had our first board meeting. They were all there. That board meeting was at Pocantico, which is the Rockefeller estate. It was an excellent day all the way around. So they're going to be involved and helpful. They have quite a global orientation, Andre and Paul. Paul's more time in Europe, but both of them in China. They were early investors in China power. So they bring in a global orientation. Over time, as we get the U.S. scaled and get that footprint out there, we would think about taking this great name and doing something outside the U.S. We'd have to partner. That's probably a longer-term build, but they'll have insight into that. So it's more than just an economic stake. How are you thinking about the spending of the capital from the deal that's coming out of the balance sheet of Rockefeller? It's more of the same of what we're doing. We're going to stay quite focused on Rockefeller Global Family Office build-out. So that's first and foremost. If we have the opportunity to do something, we have bought two RIAs, smaller acquisitions, Whitnell in the Midwest and Financial Clarity out on the West Coast. They came to us more on a negotiated basis, though. I had the bank that owned Whitnell, one of the executives I knew well from the Merrill Lynch days as the wheel keeps coming around. And the reason I point that out is if we have an investment banker call us up and say, we're selling an RIA, here's the math. Do you want to be part of the process? I almost laugh. That's not for us. We need them to want Rockefeller. We'll be fair on price, but never on the high end. But we need to get to know each other. That has to be the fit. So we're not going to participate in auction. So, But we're well capitalized. We can do things that might come up. We can do a lift out in RAM because some of the things that we've done there, we've hired teams and brought them in. And there's a lot of attractiveness to good portfolio managers. You get to work at a great firm with a great name. You get a fair amount of independence if you're good at it. So Casey's got a lot of people calling him saying, could I be part of Rockefeller Asset Management? So if we had to put some capital there, we would do that. Over the next, say, five, six years, what are your goals and objectives for the business? A lot is more of the same. And that time frame is a good time frame that you laid out. Over the next five or six years, we will get to the vision that Viking and I had in 2017. We will be scaled. We will have 200 plus teams in 50 cities. We'll have over 200 billion in assets. We'll have done a lot of the building that we need to do to support these private advisors and make the promise to the clients alive everywhere. We've done a lot already, but there's always more to do. So that's the end game from the original vision. I'll have felt good that we got there in 10 years. And then the question is, okay, where do we go? You could take this name and you could do this really well with a partner in different parts of the world because it's Rockefeller. Rockefeller is a huge name in China. They're known in Europe, the Middle East, South America. I had somebody, a South American client say to me, literally the last couple of weeks that we were in a meeting and he said, do you know what they say about the Rockefellers in South America? I said, no, I have no idea. He said, what do you think? You're a Rockefeller? That's the bandwidth of the name. But in five or six years, we want to have finished the original mandate, which was to create a best-in-class firm offering comprehensive advice through world-class private advisors to high net worth and ultra high net worth clients across all of the United States with the ability to counsel them if they built their wealth through a business and the ability to offer products on the asset management side that are unique to Rockefeller, but offer them on an open architecture basis. But that vision will have been realized. When you put your deal hat on, how do you think about the ultimate exit strategy of this business? The Demarays were step one, and the alignment of everything was the key there. If we could have another great family come in and be part of this alongside the Rockefellers and the Demarays, that would be terrific, and that opportunity should be there. We're building something here that we would like to endure. 
It's a great firm. It's a unique firm. People really do love working here. So we want to figure out a transition on the corporate side that allows that to take place. The public market's always an option, but I think it's a great business to keep private. There are strategic partners that could be value-added, but we'd be very careful there. We want to make sure that the essence of Rockefeller Capital Management uh, can endure for a long time. One of the great disappointments of my career was having to sell Merrill Lynch. Merrill had a business mix and a brand that should have endured forever, and it didn't. And I was part of that leadership team. So here I'd like to build something where someday I go down on the elevator for the last time and it endures. What are your biggest lessons learned from this experience? If you're going to build something that's great, that's closer to from scratch, and I want to be fair to the original Rock and Co. It wasn't scratch, but a lot of what we've had to do here was ground up. You're either 24-7 and all in, or it's going to be very hard to create excellence. You're building your own business that way. I can find you any time of the day. But it's true. When I look at these companies that have been created that are so amazing, whether it's Apple or Amazon, there is a lot of blood, sweat, and tears somewhere to create something that is that incredible. And I think that's true about excellence in any aspect of life. And it's clearly true here, which is why we've created this culture where everybody wants to be part of excellence. And we try to have no exceptions to that so that everybody holds the bar really high. But it's been intense, Ted. You're all in all the time. There's that feeling of necessity to make things happen on an ongoing basis. And that's why it's nice to be where we are now. I once asked a good friend of mine who started a company from scratch. I'll leave his company and his name out now, but one of the great companies in the world today. What was your hardest year? First year. What was your second hardest year? Second year. I'm like, okay, I got it. So you got to be all in and you got to focus on excellence in everything. And actually, Ted, one of my favorite quotes, Vince Lombardi said, famous football coach, Perfection is not attainable, but if we chase it, we might just catch excellence. We live a lot of that at Rockefeller Capital Management. All right, Greg, one last question for you. What's your favorite aspect of private equity? My favorite aspect of private equity is the role that it's played, I think, in the competitiveness of our economy. Look, I've had a great experience with it. I think that private equity done well becomes a capital and intellectual capital partner in something like Rockefeller Capital Management. And look at what we've done here, all the people that we've hired who are part of a company they're proud of. So I think that's a great part of private equity. And all the challenges in private equity and all the criticisms in the political world, et cetera, it certainly gets hit from all the other sides. But I think it's part of the reason this economy is as vibrant as it is. Greg, thanks so much for sharing this incredible story. You're welcome, Ted. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time.